Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. You can live your Catholic faith with your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today's episode will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We're doing something a little different today. We will have on with us uh, author Michael Heinlein. He has recently released a book on uh, Cardinal Francis George. May he rest in peace. It seems to be the definitive biography. And Cardinal George George's life was framed by two diseases and how he dealt with them. Uh, the first was polio, which he contracted at the age of 13. And then the last was bladder cancer, which dogged him for almost the last 10 years of his life. Um, the man had what appears to me to be heroic virtue that hasn't been declared yet by the church, uh, but he suffered in front of other people. And so this idea was presented to us, Chris, and we decided to go with it. Why do you think it was important for us to do this show? Yeah, good question. And I think lots of reasons, quite simply. But, you know, this is a fascinating man. Uh, And many of our listeners may not be aware of him and some of his greatness. They will after this show, I think. Um, But for those that are aware, you would have to argue he was fascinating. He was a tremendous leader of the church in a really tough time um, as president of the USCCB. He was Mm -hmm. uh, well regarded as someone willing and always always willing to speak up for religious freedom, even sometimes, I guess you could argue, to his own peril. Uh, but he, he never shied uh, away from that. And, you know, his passing, I think, marks a pretty dramatic change in the direction for the Archdiocese of Chicago, as as I'm sure will probably come up in some of our discussions. Um, I mean, he spoke openly about how difficult a diocese that was, an archdiocese was uh, for him, and some of the complexity of the politics and sort of so-called liberal versus so-called conservative uh, Catholicism that I think we'll hear more about some of his struggles. Um, But I can't read about him and not be taken with the similarities to a degree with John Paul II and his suffering and the fact that his suffering was so public uh, and that he seemingly made no attempts to to cover that. Um, And at the same time, many will say, the last thing he wanted was to be pitied, uh, but at the same time, he didn't let um, his suffering slow him down. And so you alluded to it, but he had both polio as a child, and then later in life, uh, he had bladder cancer. I mean, not just an episode of bladder cancer, but multiple episodes of bladder cancer. He had his complete bladder removed. That's called a cystectomy. He had metastatic cancer to his liver. And, you know, the man suffered greatly in those later years. In his early years, he suffered with the effects of polio. Um, and I can't help but think it's a bit of a stretch, but you know, the discussion about someone living in America stricken with polio, uh, for which we have really eradicated that disease with modern vaccinations. And you and I and our cohorts, Dr. Mullally, we spent the better part of the last three years in some way or another talking about vaccines, haven't we? Um, <laughs> And, and polio is the great success story of vaccination science. Um, it's just a terrible disease that reading about Cardinal George, it brings to life, you, you know, not that long ago, the 40s and the 50s. I remember my mother, who's now in her late 80s, um, talking about as a girl being unallowed to go to the movies and unallowed to go to public pools and things like that because there would be a polio scare in the community. Uh, and if you had contracted the disease, a uh, very high probability you might be left um, with a permanent deficit, even those horrific pictures of children and adults in the so-called iron lung machines when the muscles of their breathing uh, were permanently paralyzed. So polio is just a horrible disease, but it does represent a great story of success in science with vaccination. Uh, and it represents uh, Cardinal George overcoming this terrible disease to become, you know, Cardinal George. Um, so, you know, this idea of suffering has some degree of redemptive value. I think that's that's got to be one of the more intriguing things about this story that I can't wait uh, to learn more about. Uh, and I actually had an uh, opportunity to meet him twice in person about a month apart. Right. 
And I remember uh, when I met him first in September of 2013, I'm a Knight of the Holy Sepulchre, and he was the cardinal in charge of our part of the country, and he posed for pictures with us couples. And I could just see he was in such incredible pain standing there posing with all of us. It's like, you must have more important things to do than to stand here with us in our our fancy clothing. But it brought to mind something from the book um, about his early trials with polio as I saw him there suffering. And he said at one time when he was in the hospital as a 13-year-old, they brought patients on lorries into an amphitheater where all the medical students stared down at you. He Mm. said, my name was never mentioned. I was never introduced. And he thought that if there was some small recognition of human subjectivity, it would have gone a long way to helping those doctors who were at that time medical students. And he said, but the sense in his own experience, even at that time, was that something was radically wrong in that situation. And there is, I mean, it's the objectification of the person and how awful that had to be for him. And it would be wonderful for us to say to listeners, but we've (laughs) solved all of that in medical education now. But unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately we have not. I mean, that's just this idea. It's, it's not the polio case in room three. It's a person um, that, that deserves dignity and respect because they're a human person. But sadly, uh, the medical industry doesn't doesn't always remember to treat people that way. You know, interestingly, a month later, October 26, 2013, I was flying back from Santa Barbara in the annual Catholic Medical Association meeting. And who was our keynote speaker the night before? Cardinal George. Well, a bunch of us were fogged in in the airport for several hours there. And he was sitting with his priest secretary, but nobody was going near him. And I'm like, darn it, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm going to go start talking to him. And so I did. And so all the other doctors came streaming and listening. And so for about half an hour, we we talked to him and I actually took notes. And this was like a year ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. And I still found these notes. And, you know, he thought that his talk was boring. And what he actually ended up doing was summarizing the whole conference, (laughs) you know, during his talk, he was, um, uh, astounding. But one of the things I remember at that time, there was the great talk of the HHS mandate under mm-hmm. Obamacare. And he was uh, having other bishops in the country um, make statements against it. And eventually he was able to get all of them for it. But he said that um, if they didn't speak up against the HHS mandate, he said that there would be deeper material cooperation among healthcare entities. And while the Catholic entities might look the same on the outside, they would be changed for the worse on the inside. And I remarked to him, this sounded like a perverse form of transubstantiation, where, you know, the Eucharist still looks like bread and wine, but it's really is not is the body and blood of Christ. And he, he visibly startled at that he shook and he said, Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, and he said, the one other thing I'd like to leave with you from that conversation, I have so many points from it, but he said, so often we wait for the bishops to speak out against the culture of death. And he said, that's not just the bishop's job. He said, it's mostly the lady's job. And he said, mm-hmm. we, the bishops need us and the lady to speak out in the culture for the culture of life. And wow. so, um, and he was made bishop by, and then later cardinal. Uh, by John Paul II. And and, and yeah. that's a very JP2 thing, isn't it? That the laity has such an important role to play. It's not just our priests and bishops and cardinals. Oh, no. Yeah. Pope John Paul was so great about that. Oh, here's a, um, you know, Tom, when you, you know, you were with him, did you, uh, did you, did you have a sense you were in the presence of someone who is great uh, when you were with him or what was that feeling like? Oh, I knew he was like the smartest guy in the room at the time at any USCCB, because I'd heard that from other people, and that whenever he would speak, everybody would listen. And so that's why I knew it was such an awesome opportunity. So I was literally sitting in the airport terminal at his feet, talking to him, and about 20 other doctors behind me just standing and listening. And then after about 20 minutes, another doctor ventured to ask a question, because I did not think he would suffer fools gladly. So I tried to make sure that my questions were really well thought out and pointed. But, uh, you know, we'll leave the introduction to the show with with this quote from um, Michael's book in where the, um, 
Cardinal George said both the liberals and conservatives put too much emphasis on the bishops. So the idea of being in some sense a guru, of being some kind of mythic figure, that's not who I am then or now in my understanding of myself. And I thought, wow, I mean, the guy knew who he was. And we're going to explore that after the break with uh, Michael Heinlein. But first, the medical trivia question of the day. And the category is the bladder, which Chris already mentioned. So the human bladder stores urine until it's convenient to release it. The average adult bladder holds about a liter or two cups of urine. Question is, how much urine in the bladder is typically necessary to make us feel like we need to urinate? And as a bonus, true or false, as we age, our bladders become stiffer and therefore can hold less urine prompting the desire for us to urinate more frequently. We'll have the answers to those after the break, but um, after the break, at the end of the show, but after the break, we'll be back to learn more about Cardinal George and how he dealt with suffering in his life here on Dr. Doctor. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor, where we are joined by our guest, author, Michael Heinlein. Michael's the editor of our Sunday visitors, simplycatholic.com blog and a regular contributor to OSV's periodicals. He earned a degree in theology at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and he's written books including The Handy Little Guide to Spiritual Communion, Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood, and the Teeny Tiny Theology Children series, all at Our Sunday Visitor. He finds great inspiration from the lives of saints and the spirituality of the Pauline family, and often he's fond of using whatever spare time he has for genealogical research. His greatest treasures are his Catholic faith and his family. He's married to Gretchen, with whom he has three children. Michael, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks so much for having me. So, so Michael, You've written a great book. Your book, your re, your your writing style is incredibly easy to read. It's engaging, but why should we talk about this on a show that discusses the intersection of faith and medicine? Well, I think that uh, anytime you're looking at the biography of someone, you're looking at the situations in which they find themselves, and um, when you're looking at Cardinal George's life, you certainly can't escape the fact that health and sickness is a major part of his story. Mm. And so hopefully, um, by his own Christian witness in dealing with sickness and suffering, he can be a help to anyone who is going through the same, through his own witness. Wow. So Michael, you know, you're obviously a scholar, uh, and you could have chosen to write about any number of great people. What attracted you to, to Cardinal George? Well, I grew up uh, in the Northwest uh, Indiana area outside of Chicago, and so I was always attracted to him ever since I was about 11 when he came to Chicago. And uh, although I was not attracted to him by the way I would be later in life, um, there was something about him that always uh, drew me toward him. So uh, his character, his sense of humor were certainly things that were appealing at that young age. But uh, there was also an authenticity, which I can label now about him. And um, so later on, then it was in high school and in college, I was particularly drawn to his teaching, his clear articulation of the faith, an uncompromising way of doing so. And uh, honestly, I, I just think everything about Cardinal George speaks to us as disciples and can really help us in our own quest to be uh, closer followers of Jesus. You mentioned that it was challenging to bring the book to publication. I know you've told me offline some of the, the foibles. What do you think made it so difficult to bring the biography of this great man to fruition as you now have? Well, I think any researcher, any biographer would recognize the fact that writing about someone who died in living memory uh, is kind of a hard obstacle to overcome because there are a lot of people that are involved in his life story who are still with us. And so they might not necessarily be free or able to talk and uh, helpful to you. And so you have to really work at building relationships and making sure that everybody understands what your project is about. Because, uh, you know, I, I didn't have any other writings on Cardinal George to kind of show myself. And so that was a real hurdle to overcome. But I'm grateful I did it because there were so many people I was able to talk to who knew him for a long, long time, some of whom have died already. And I was able to lock in their memories before they went to meet the Lord. So, um, you know, I think in the end, uh, the Lord started this project at the time he wanted it to start. Now, Michael, uh, I, I've, I've read some of your work where you describe um, the, the Cardinal himself describing 
some of the challenges in the archdiocese and some of the divisions and things like that. Um, what did he mean when, when he was talking about that, literally? Yeah, well, see, the, the Archdiocese of Chicago, as he would point out so regularly, was a very difficult place to govern. He learned that from his predecessor, Cardinal Bernadine. And uh, that's because the political life of the city so much uh, shapes the life of the church. And so it was really hard to try to break through the kind of uh, political labels we put onto each other and the kind of ideologies and agendas that can plague us when we're living the gospel. So he had a real hard time understanding um, uh, the best way in which he could govern. He had trouble seeing things through a political lens. He detested right-left labels. Um, but then the yeah. sex abuse crisis hit him very hard there. He had a hard time knowing who to trust. In the midst of a very ugly abuse crisis that happened on his watch, he, he made it very clear to his staff that he felt no one was really telling him the truth. And so he, he said uh -huh. the, the unspoken mantra in the chancery was, don't tell the cardinal. And that really left him isolated and caused a lot of suffering for him. You know, I would imagine, listeners, I, I certainly feel this way. When we think of a bishop, especially of a cardinal, we think of someone that they snap their fingers and whatever they desire is done. Uh, but I think we know that that's not necessarily true. But did you get a sense from him of, you know, what some of the challenges were with governing a huge archdiocese that's so historic like that of Chicago? Yeah, you see, there, there's this system in, in Illinois and a lot of places throughout the country called Corporation Soul. So everything uh, is owned in the archdiocese or in the diocese by the bishop. And so the, the buck literally stops with him in all circumstances. But it's a matter of getting the information to him. And I think he felt that oftentimes everybody was out for themselves and not necessarily out on the whole. I, he ran into that time and time again. And so he really suffered because of that and felt... Uh, very isolated. There was one auxiliary bishop who he was very close to, who was helping him as vicar general, and he died suddenly of cancer, and he felt like he was kind of left hanging out to dry at that point. It was it was really a sad um, circumstance to learn, because the thing with Cardinal George was he never let on. He never made this clear to people. He, he, he held these things in his heart. So, Michael, let's go back to 1950. He's 13 years old. He's a normal, you know, eighth grade boy, happy-go-lucky, active in sports, and something dramatic happens, polio. Tell us about that. Yeah, the polio hit him at a time when it was hitting so many people in the United States. Of course, we had President Franklin Roosevelt who had polio and tried to hide it. There was a real stigma associated with the polio and its effects. Um, I know that Cardinal George's family felt that stigma because, uh, at least in Chicago at the time, they felt it was a sign of a dirty family if someone right. got polio. And so that really, really troubled them and, and, and added a lot of anxiety to the, to the family dynamic. But yeah, he was 13 years old, a very healthy young boy. He loved to play around with the, the boys on the street. They called themselves the Byron Street Gang in Northwest Chicago. And um, he felt like he had the cold or a flu, but then paralysis started setting in his legs. And uh, he knew that it wasn't the flu. They thought maybe he got it at a, a Boy Scouts outing, but it was never detectable where he got it from. So how long was he hospitalized and what were his symptoms during the hospitalization and then what lingered with him the rest of his life? He was hospitalized for several months, uh, which was in those days a, a lengthy stay. Uh, he had paralysis in both legs, particularly in his right leg, but also in his right hand. And uh, he was, you know, he, he felt sorry for himself a lot, he said. And he, he had really been struggling with how to uh, see the future of his life in light of this illness. Because in those days, eighth grade was a real serious year for vocational discernment and where the rest of your life would kind of go. And so uh, he knew he wanted to become a priest. But it, it seemed that that was uh, maybe not going to happen because of the polio. But I learned a, a story from his sister, Margaret, which was very uh, enlightening to me and really spoke of the Cardinal's character from that young age, that the only way he could begin to start making sense of this was through the cross. There was a man who shared a room with him, and he would talk back and forth, and usually there was a drawn curtain between them. <laughs> but this man remarked to uh, the Cardinal's mother 
that whenever young Franny, as he was called, would fall <laughs> silent in their conversations and the nurse might walk in and pull the curtain open or whatever, he would look o- over at, at young Franny and see him staring at the cross. And right then and there, you start to see that he is trying to make sense of suffering and pain in the only way that we can as Christians. And uh, that's really what defined the rest of his life. But, you know, at that young age, he's wrestling with a lot of feelings and emotions of what this is like. He talked about being brought into uh, like amphitheaters and kind of being a guinea pig and studied as this nameless, numberless uh, uh, specimen for doctors to kind of uh, play upon. He remarked later that uh, he always felt like orthopedic surgeons treated him like a slab of meat. And so he was very hesitant to go into surgical operations, although he had many throughout his life. So it was really uh, quite the battle for him uh, starting at that young age. And then when he came home after that, what could he not do that he used to be able to do? Well, he loved to play softball in the streets. They used the manhole covers as the bases with his neighborhood <laughs> friends. He loved to um, paint. He loved to play the piano. His mother was a music teacher. And all those things uh, started to slip away from him. He was able to, with time, begin to get some of that back. He he was able to start up painting again. And there are several of his paintings still around. One of them is in the book of the Holy Family that he painted around that time for his sister. but. Wow. Um, he, you know, he ended up becoming, uh, he was always very smart, even though he missed several months of eighth grade. He was the valedictorian of his class. Uh, but he really turned into the cerebral uh, intellectual giant at that time, because while he couldn't go out and play with the other kids and do the things that his peers were doing, he would sit back, look out the window, but talk to the teachers and he would be, that happened especially uh, later in life, in, in his high school and college years. Now, I've read the discussion that uh, you described where uh, he finished his sort of lower seminary, which we would now call high school, right? And he's thinking of the priesthood, but he's, he's all but told you can't be a priest because of your, your disabilities. Something we couldn't even imagine saying to someone today that really anyone could do anything, uh, but not, not in the 50s, right? Uh, what was that really like? What was that about? Yeah, that was that was where his life was headed, uh, his whole time since First Communion. When he was eight years old, he said he really felt the nudge on his heart to become a priest. He was under the tutelage of his pastor. He helped out serving Mass, all sorts of odd jobs in the parish. He lived just a couple blocks away, so it was, it was a second home for him. Um, but then when the polio hit, and uh, he was applying to the high school seminary in Chicago. They said, well, we think you're going to have some trouble getting downtown on a couple of bus transfers. He was on crutches at that point. And uh, we think you'll have trouble with the stairs in the building. But you can come to school here if you want to give it a try. But we want to let you know up front, we're not going to ordain you a priest. And so wow. that was a very, very hard lesson, of course, for anybody 13, 14 to be told I think there are two ways that could have gone, right? You could have resented the church and run for your life from the church and been very hardened. But that wasn't the case. I think he accepted that rather Christ-like way, that rejection. And he knew that God still had a plan for him in spite of that. In his own words, in an interview I found, he said, well, to heck with you guys. And uh, (laughs) he went down south in Illinois, about a five-hour train ride away to Belleville, just across the Mississippi from uh, St. Louis. And the Oblates of Mary Immaculate was the congregation who operated a minor seminary there. He found out about them from an eighth grade classmate whose uncle was a priest there. And uh, the rest was history in some ways. The Oblate vocation director came to uh, the family home, the George's home in northwest side of Chicago. And they said, "If, if you want to join the Oblates and become a priest, you just need to walk across the room. And his sister recounted being there and watching him walk across the room with a lot of tears in her eyes. <laughs> Did you get a sense at all why the Oblates had a different perspective on his potential to become a priest than the traditional you know, parish, parish priest path, you might say? Well, in those days, diocesan seminaries were rather full, and uh, they were somewhat selective. So I, I've heard stories even about guys who would be orn- uh, lined up on their ordination day and be told, well, we've, we've got enough, you can wait till next year. 
Uh, so the, the, the days were quite different in diocesan vocations. Uh, and so Oblate, uh, as any religious congregation, the Oblates were open to uh, other vocations and people who might have difficulty in the, in the light of that sort of system. So um, yeah, they definitely, as a missionary congregation, as a congregation dedicated to bringing the gospel to the poor in the poorest regions of the world, they were open to a young man who wanted to do that despite his own poorness. So, Michael, how did his polio affect his work first with the OMIs and then later on when he was ordained a bishop? Well, the polio affected him in a variety of ways, even as a young priest, because uh, the trouble with a, a limping gait that he had was putting pressure on his hip, on his back. So even as a young priest studying in New Orleans, where he received his first doctorate from Tulane University in philosophy, he was hospitalized several times. I found that out through some correspondence. It wasn't even something he really talked about much. But um, he, he really dealt with that uh, in a rather uh, objective way, just, well, this is the problem. I've got to deal with it, and I'll move on. Um, and then as a bishop, you know, uh, he had this period before he became a bishop, though, I should say, where he was vicar general for the Oblates of Mary yes. Mac, which meant he was number two, and he was living in Rome, and he traveled all around the world visiting over 40 countries. Ironic, providential. I mean, Chicago said you yes. can't make it downtown, but here he is sleeping <laughs> on the floor. Yes, exactly. And he's, he's all over the world, never staying in a hotel, staying always with the poor, sometimes on the floor. Um, <laughs> and then he became a bishop, uh, something he kind of protested against, actually. I found out. Uh, but uh, anyway, as a bishop, his first line when he was ordained a bishop in Yakima, Washington, he told the people, if I fall down, just pick me up and we'll go on together. <laughs> what a humble man. And his intellect was towering. Uh, it's like yeah. we don't have somebody to replace that right now in the in the U.S. Boy, what a, a gift he was. And I have to tell you, one of my favorite parts of the book is where you chose um, a segment from Psalm 118 for one of the chapters, and that is, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Tell us why that is so apt for his life. What happened that you chose that verse? Well, it's the story of his rejection in Chicago at 13 and coming back home at 60, 59, as the Archbishop of Chicago. Cornerstone. You know, uh, only in God's providence does this happen, because you can't make it up. No. <laughs> I, I'd rather, he was such a humble man, but I have to wonder if he didn't uh, try to look up the old vocations director and give him a, a very holy na 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 <laughs> well, he mentioned at one point, and I think I quoted in the book that uh, he said, there are a lot of people who didn't want me to come back home, and they're ruling the day that they told me that back in the day. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he, he made it. And, uh, you know, it's amazing to think uh, all the things that he encountered in his life, despite the disability, all the things that he was able to accomplish, but all because he dedicated himself completely to the Lord, and he really lived the life of an oblate. He, he was a, a human offering to the Lord, as St. Paul says, right, that we should offer spiritual worship by our own lives and our own bodies. That's what he did. He was a living example of that. So oblate really means being making yourself a sacrifice in a profound way. Now, tell us more about the the suffering he experienced. Chris was, you know, getting to this earlier in questions, but how extreme was his isolation uh, and loneliness as a bishop? Well, I think you have to look at it on top of the pain. You know, his sister would right. tell me quite frequently, there was never a day he wasn't in a lot of pain. So you've got that working against you to a certain degree, you know, and then with a guy like himself, who was so clear and could always see 10 steps ahead of everybody else. Uh, you know, you've got that working against you too. So there's a constant kind of frustration and an impatience that he would talk about himself. Uh, but then, as I had mentioned earlier, this sense of isolation where he felt like, I don't know exactly who to trust. I don't know exactly how to go about what I'm supposed to do all the time in light of the many difficulties and many challenges that I'm facing. And so I think that Cardinal George was a man who, you know, just could get up every day and say, okay, I'm going to go about serving the Lord and his people. But he, he really had to kind of separate himself from all of the, uh, 
the sources for anxiety or, uh, you know, in a position such as his, that would be crippling. Well, Michael, that's a great point uh, for us to take a break. And we're going to be right back after the break and learn a lot more from you about Cardinal George. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And uh, Michael, we can't thank you enough for talking to us about your terrific new book on Cardinal George. You know, just before the break, we were getting to sort of, uh, he gets to Chicago and he suffered since a teen um, with polio. He's been there about a decade and then he gets another terrible diagnosis, bladder cancer. I mean, even today, there's nothing nothing nice one can say about bladder cancer. But tell us about that uh, that sequence of events. Yes, it was um, in 2006 that he first started noticing blood in the urine and uh, went to the doctor. He had a uh, Jesuit priest who was his personal doctor, uh, Father Miles Sheehan, and I was fortunate enough to be able to interview him and quote him in the book. But he talked about the type of cancer that the cardinal had and said that he would have been dead within months if this hadn't been treated in a very radical way. Uh, so the result of that was what they call a radical, radical cystectomy, which was uh, the removal of the bladder and a rearranging of his insides. His doctor was very clear to me, don't underestimate that word radical and what it means for <laughs> your body. Um, this isn't something that the Cardinal talked about very much, and it's certainly not something that was mm. you know, uh, covered too much in depth uh, in the news or in the media, but he really went through quite an operation. And so much so uh, that in recovery, uh, they didn't know it at first, but his blood pressure had plummeted and he had to be rushed back into the operating room because he was bleeding internally. Uh, you'd think the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago uh, would get a little better uh, treatment than that, but uh, such was life. And uh, he, he now, was- Michael, what, what age would the Cardinal have been about this point? Uh, he was uh, nearing 70 at that point. Okay. All right. So, so, a relatively Michael, young man. How did his body excrete urine after this? Did he have an ostomy bag? So they, um, in, in, the, in the surgery, they had to create an artificial bladder for the cardinal out of some oh. of his intestine. Uh, but, you know, this is another aspect of his suffering that wasn't talked about all that much, is that when you have an artificial bladder, you don't know when you need to void. And so he had to live with that constant pressure of, of uh, needing to go to the bathroom because he was, he was very um, adamant about taking care of himself in this way. So he had to wear a special watch, which had all sorts of uh, timer devices that would keep him even up in the night to use <laughs> the facilities. And, uh, you know, he, he just wanted to work with what God gave him as best he could. Oh, my goodness. So what are some of the insights that uh, his priest doctor had about his holiness? Well, you know, as he explained to me, uh, and you would know very well as doctors, the person's character really shines through in moments of pain and suffering. And you can really get to see what's at their heart. And he talked about how the cardinal didn't really like pain. But he would put up with it. I mean, who likes pain, right? <laughs> Nobody. But he, he, would, he, would, he didn't like to be uncomfortable, uh, his doctor said. He was mostly scared and anxious about what these new pains might mean because he was used to pain all his life. But there were known pains, and he could deal with this pain because he knew what the causes of it were. Sure. But in this case, as he's going through operations and treatments, he didn't know exactly what he was dealing with. So there was a certain level of, of nervousness or anxiety there. But he said he was always very resolute in his trust for the Lord. And he certainly knew that uh, whatever God had in store for him, he was going to give God his all. It's hard to imagine someone could endure that and not become bitter. I mean, suffering his whole life with polio and its after effects, thinking now that, you know, he's at the pinnacle of his career, you might say. He gets bladder cancer, has this radical surgery. But there's more to the story because he's not finished with cancer, is he? But he's no. in remission first, though, right? And when he's in remission, he gets the gift of what? President of the USCCB? Are you kidding me? That's right. A little over a year after his, uh, his surgical operation for the bladder cancer, he was elected president of the U.S. Bishops Conference. Um, and in between that, he had fallen 
and and hurt his leg and his shoulder. He slipped on holy water on Holy Saturday, Oops. blessing Easter baskets. So he really had a rough year. And I think he might have said that getting elected president of the bishops' conference might have been the hardest thing about that entire year. <laughs> Why would he say that, Michael? Well, you you would know, I think, as you've discussed, uh, he really was the point man for the church in the United States mm -hmm. when we were facing such threats against religious liberty. And so uh, it was a providential time for him to be president of the bishops conference, because not only could he unify the bishops, which was, you know, itself a major task, but he was able to articulate that unity in such a way that all the bishops could understand what the issues the church was facing at that time. And so he was able to really um, give a blueprint for how we can oppose, you know, the things that were kind of being pushed against us by the federal government. So the bladder cancer stays away for how long, Michael? Well, he had the cancer operation in 2006, and in 2012, it reappears. And uh, there are some treatments that occur at that time, and then it seems to go dormant again for, for a little while. But then uh, by early 2014, it comes back. And so in the spring of 2014, it becomes clear that his health is very precarious. He asks uh, the Holy See to expedite any plans for his retirement and to start looking for a successor. Uh, he knew that... Uh, he needed to dedicate himself to the care of his health because if, the job of Archbishop of Chicago was, you know, constant. Uh, it was always on the go. He knew six months ahead of time where he would be on a certain day and a certain time. And he had no freedom. He lived completely for others. So he knew that in order to, to survive and in order to give uh, any more that he had to the church, he needed to start looking at retirement. Did you get a sense at all from your research that he played a role, for lack of a better term, in, in selecting his replacement? Uh, the only thing I know about that is from his own words, uh, from an interview he gave, where he said that that was uh, handled outside of the normal procedures, that the congregation for bishops didn't, uh, uh, who would normally you know, con confer on these sorts of things, didn't do that. And uh, he said, I don't know who was consulted. So uh, he, he had a feeling that, that Pope Francis had intervened directly in that appointment. But uh, those are the only things that I could find that he said publicly. Now, what were some of the symptoms he experienced when this cancer came back, Michael? Well, it, when it came back, it was in the kidneys and the liver. There was a nodule in his liver. So uh, he, he started to get infections. He started getting dehydrated. He started um, experiencing cellulitis. And so he needed to walk again with crutches, which was um, something that he was using uh, kind of in a poetic way, I guess. And his last public mass as Archbishop of Chicago in November 2014, he walked out of Holy Name Cathedral on crutches, just like he walked out of Chicago in 1951 on crutches <laughs> to go to Belleville and seminary. So there was something beautiful about that, that here's this man who, who was broken all these years but kept giving himself. Um, so uh, anyway, he, he went into an experimental treatment, um, and then by the end of 2014, he had said that he believed his doctors ran out of the tricks in the bag. And so uh, he was dead within about four months after that. Wow, now, remarkable. What were, now, it's interesting that his predecessor was also a visible source of somebody suffering and dying before a large number of people, Cardinal Bernadine. Isn't that true? Yes, he had pancreatic cancer when he died, and he was only in his uh, mid to late 60s at the time. And he had written a book about uh, his experience of suffering and his, you know, his own contemplation on death, which was a great witness for many people. Cardinal George, in fact, had written a column about that while he was Archbishop of oh. Portland. Uh, he was only Archbishop of Portland for 10 months before he got named to Chicago. But uh, he was, he was uh, you know, kind of dialed in still to Chicago and had read the book and was aware of the Cardinal's own witness. And so it was interesting to read his comments about his... What did he say? Her predecessor. 
What well, he just thought that it was a, a great witness that Cardinal Bernadine had given about his acceptance of death as a friend, as uh, you know, not something that we should be scared of or run away from. And certainly, those are the same things that the cardinal, uh, Cardinal George himself, tried to live out when he, uh, you know, dealt with the effects of polio, but then again with cancer at the end of his life. What were his stated views on dying and death? Well, he talked about how he felt that death, particularly, I suppose, in his own circumstances, but in all of our cases, is a, is a constant stripping away. And he said, we're being stripped away ultimately so that there's only one thing left that is necessary, and that is the love of God. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was such a beautiful way to put it, because he was able to truly see through this life of pain, this life of suffering, and now at the moment preparing himself for death that God is love. And that's hard for us to comprehend when we're hurting and when we're, you know, uh, fighting against the, 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 the own destruction of our body because of illnesses. But he was able to see that very clearly, even in the midst of it all. What do you think um, the average listener can, can take home from this, this giant of a man who even as an eighth grader was pretty much uniting his sufferings with those of Christ. That's not your average eighth grader. It's not your average eighth grader, is it? Um, and I, I, I think in some ways, you know, that was, he was not your average person. <laughs> so that being said, I think if we look at the life of Cardinal George and we see the story of a man of pastoral availability, of empathy, of comfort, of, of solace for people who are suffering, uh, if we look at what he could do in the face of all that, he has something to teach us, because ultimately he was he was living his life, as we said, as an oblation, as a sacrifice, as an offering. And so his perspective of sickness, his perspective of pain, his perspective of suffering is something that's transformative because it leads us back to Christ and it leads us back to finding the only source of meaning that we can, uh, you know, um, grapple with these things that we find ourselves in. What are your favorite lessons that you try to apply in your own life from learning about Cardinal George? Well, Cardinal George was someone who was prophetic. Now, sometimes he would uh, argue against that, but I think that if we look at what the word really means, he was a man who proclaimed the truth Mm -hmm. in season and out of season. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think for any of us who desire to be you know, holy or to grow in our own discipleship or our own missionary discipleship and be, be proclaimers of the gospel, we need to be prophetic. We're, we're baptized, anointed, priest, prophet, and king, right? And so he's a real example of how to see the situation in which we find ourselves and point out where God is missing, but also where God is active and we can build upon that. So he was really a prophetic man. He was pastoral. Um, when you think about Cardinal George's life, and if, if you'll read in the book if you, if you happen to do so, he was always the last to leave an event. A man who was so busy with he, he would stay until the last person left, and he would share a cup of coffee with anybody. Uh, he was very open and available. And you even see that now in death. Cardinal George chose not to be buried in the Archbishop's Mausoleum in Chicago. He chose to be buried with his parents in a regular Catholic cemetery in a suburb of Chicago. Oh. People coming there and visiting him and leaving things there, seeking his prayers or leaving flowers or candles or statues or pictures of sick relatives, notes asking for his intercession. Oh so he's still available to his people. And I think that's a lesson for all of us who want to grow in our own discipleship, to be like Christ and be present to others, right? So I hope that uh, his, his discipleship, his prophetic qualities, his, his pastoral nature are all inspirational to people. Also, his perseverance. And, uh, you know, we can all learn from how to keep moving forward through someone like Cardinal George, no matter what obstacles we might find ourselves in, that there's got to be a trust in God's providence and a, and a real sense of continually offering ourselves for love of God. So if people are continually going to his place of burial, that's kind of one of the criteria that the church looks at if somebody wants to open a cause for canonization. What are your thoughts on that future possibility? 
Well, I, I would hope that the church would seriously consider that because in looking at his life, I think it's rather evident that he possessed a heroic virtue, that he certainly was a man who committed himself to growth and holiness. Um, he was not someone who uh, was who took himself too seriously. And so, uh, you know, those are the qualities that we look for in saints. But as you mentioned, we also look for our people turning to this person for intercession. Right. And right. so, uh, I, you know, that is that has definitely been present. I have spoken to people who felt that through his intercession that there has been uh, favors granted to them for various circumstances. Um, and so I hope that uh, in time these things will continue to grow. I hope that my book can uh, help people to get to know his story a little more and grow in a spiritual friendship with him, which you know, as the person writing this, I, I have to say, I, he's a spiritual friend that I talk to rather frequently, and uh, he has been a great source of, of consolation and support for me. So I hope others can come to know that too. Well, you know, Michael, I think we may have actually skipped over the title of your book. Yes, the book is called Glorifying Christ, The Life of Cardinal Francis E. George OMI. And uh, the, the title itself, Glorifying Christ, comes from, it's a playoff of his Episcopal motto, Christo Gloria in Ecclesia, to Christ be glory in the church, which comes from St. Paul. And that's really what his life was all about, and it's what our lives should be about too, to give glory to Christ in all things. There was a really beautiful quote where he talked about the meaning of his uh, Episcopal motto at one point. And he ah. said, what is the greatest way in which we give glory to God? It's through suffering, through martyrdom, oh my. through dying to self. And that is exactly the story of his life. Oh, my goodness. So, Michael, last question. What do you hope that readers of your book will take away in their daily lives? Well, I hope that the readers of our book, uh, Cardinal George's story, can, can certainly find inspiration to answer the call to holiness, can find a, a model of what it means to be a disciple amidst many challenges and difficulties, and that ultimately uh, Cardinal George is someone that they can turn to in times of difficulty as, uh, as a real uh, intercessor. And where do they get a copy of your book? Well, the book's available through osvcatholicbookstore.com or Amazon or wherever else books are sold. I found it even on Target. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michael, for being with us. Uh, I love the show. Uh, I hope our listeners did, too. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome again to this week's answer to the medical trivia question about what else? About the bladder. The bladder. So, bladder stores about two cups of urine. How much has to be in there before we feel a need to go? And it doesn't matter if you're on a car trip or not. It's the same. <laughs> it might matter, though, if you're pregnant and the little baby's bouncing on top of it. That's different. That is different. So, how much? About half full, about one cup. So, that when there's one cup of urine in the bladder, that's when it's sent telling you, you need to find a certain room of the house or a building or whatever. Now, the bonus you know, point. Many, many people struggle with what's called urinary urgency, yes. where it, it happens long before that cup, uh, where they get the sense that they must go immediately or they're going to die. And in yes. reality, there's nothing there. And, and that's a reflex problem that's often treated uh, with medication. But people will be shocked to learn that's, that's actually a lot of volume. That, that is, yeah, a cup is a good amount. So the bonus question, as we get older, do our bladders become stiffer, uh, hold less urine, and give us a greater desire to urinate more frequently? And the answer is absolutely yes. Yes, Like it does. everything else, it gets harder to work and stiffer, <laughs> and less, less compliant and uh, more achy as we age. So there you go. Chris, three <laughs> top takeaways from this show. Well, I, you know, I've, I've read part of this book and I can't wait to crack it open and, uh, and finish it, especially now. But, you know, the first thing that comes to mind listening to him is uh, I'm reminded how fortunate many people like you and I are. We, we know our bishop, yes. Bishop Kevin Rhodes. Uh, yes. And, you know, if listeners, if you don't know your bishop, wherever you are, you should, uh, because they're normal people. Uh, they tend to be more holy than the usual person. <laughs> uh, but, 
but they want to know their flock. And, and I feel really blessed that I know my bishop and I can speak with him and, and ask him things. And uh, you get that sense that a bishop like Cardinal uh, George would want to be known by the members of his flock. And he always made himself available. So, so don't pass that up in your, in your faith life, a chance to know your own bishop. You know, the second thing, I love that statement that he said, our lives uh, should be about giving glory to Christ in everything we do, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, in Cardinal George's case, struggling with disease and cancer and recurrent cancer and all of the problems that led to that, he still seemed to do everything for the good and the glory of God. And what a great example that is. Um, and then finally, the, the third one is, I, I like the way that he said, whether it's by reading this book or, or, or whatever that you need to do, find inspiration to answer the call to holiness. And, and certainly don't let minor setbacks stop you. Cardinal George didn't let tremendous disease uh, stop him. We shouldn't let uh, our suffering stop us either. Nope. And it's a really easy to read book. I think you'll enjoy it. Maybe you get it for a friend. Be that as it may, we thank you for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this in all our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top where you can search over 300 episodes by topic or guest. And you can watch the video version of most of our podcasts. Just click on the YouTube link that's near the top of the homepage. Again, drdoctor.org. Uh, if you've got a question that you'd like to ask us, if there's a, a topic you'd like us to cover, we would love to hear from you. Just click on Submit a Question. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to our text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.